Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policy and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Julian Barnes-Dacey. I'm the director of the Middle East and North Africa program at ECFR, and I'll be guest hosting this week's discussion looking at the long-running conflict in the Western Sahara. This is a conflict that's come back into the limelight given President Trump's recognition of Moroccan sovereignty over the disputed territory in exchange for Morocco's diplomatic normalization with Israel, as well as the recent collapse of the long-standing ceasefire on the ground. We're also seeing a current spat between Morocco and Spain, which has seen Rabat allow thousands of migrants into Ceuta, the Spanish enclave in North Africa, due to Madrid's provision of medical assistance to a leader of the Polisario Front. It's an issue that immediately affects Europe's relations with North Africa, and there's a lot to discuss. We've got a really great group of experts to walk us through current developments, and I'm really happy to introduce them to you. Irene Fernandez-Molina is a senior lecturer in international relations at the University of Exeter. Nacho Torreblanca is head of ECFR's Madrid office. And Jacob Mundy is a visiting fellow with ECFR and an associate professor at Colgate University, New York. Jacob recently co-authored a paper for us with Hugh Lovett, Free to Choose a New Plan for Peace in Western Sahara, which is available on ECFR's website and which I'd encourage you all to read. So thank you all very much for joining and let's get stuck right in. Jacob, could I perhaps start with you and, you know, could you perhaps just give us some initial background on what lies behind this long-standing conflict? You know, what's driven the recent collapse of the ceasefire? And kind of what are the wider factors that are now pushing it back onto the international agenda? Yeah, those are great questions, Julian. The conflict itself dates back to 1975 when Morocco invaded the territory in an attempt to wrest control of it from Spain, which was about to hold a referendum on independence. A nationalist movement called the Polisario Front had already formed to to fight for the, the country's independence. And Morocco was very keen to to stop this due to a kind of historical claim to the territory as a part of a broader kind of idea of what Morocco was before colonization. So there there was a war that went on until 1991 and there was a UN ceasefire uh, and that ceasefire was premised on this idea that there would be a referendum. After 10 years of trying to organize this referendum, the UN kind of gave it up and said we need a negotiated solution. And since then, we've had, you know, 20 more years of failed efforts to achieve a negotiated solution. So at the end of last year, some very dramatic events happened. On the one hand, at uh, what is really kind of the only exit point in the territory leading to uh, Mauritania. So from the Moroccan-occupied Western Sahara into Mauritania, a very vital trade route. Dispute had emerged where uh, Polisario felt that its rights, which is based upon the armistice line from 1991, were being violated, that Morocco was violating the agreement of the ceasefire by enhancing infrastructure in that region, particularly the the paved road, which would allow Morocco to more efficiently exploit the territory's natural resources. Polisario tried to stage a, a protest, a civilian protest, after years of sort of raising concerns within the UN. That protest was expelled by Moroccan forces. And Polisario had said that this is a red line for us and we will we will consider our obligation to the 1991 ceasefire dead at that point. And they did. And so that's when they began renewing armed attacks against Moroccan positions along this 2,700 kilometer defensive wall that separates the Polisario controlled Western Sahara from the Moroccan controlled Western Sahara. And so since then, we've had daily 
attacks by Polisario. This has gotten gotten some attention, but not as much as one would have assumed, at, especially at the level of the Security Council. In an unrelated development, the outgoing Trump administration decided to re- recognize Moroccan sovereignty over Western Sahara in exchange for Morocco's renormalization of its relations with Israel, which had been suspended during the second intifada. This quid pro quo was basically a part of the broader Abraham Accords, which the Trump administration negotiated with various Arab states to get more recognition of Israel. The side deal for Morocco was that the United States would become the only major country in the world, indeed probably the most explicit in terms of recognition, when it comes to a a state recognizing Moroccan control over Western Sahara. And so that also brought a lot of renewed attention to the issue of Western Sahara. And now more recently, we've had flare-ups of diplomatic tensions between Morocco and Germany on the question of Western Sahara, and then uh, Morocco and Spain, where Western Sahara is definitely in the background of what's going on in terms of migration and other political diplomatic issues. Thanks, Jacob. And is your sense that there is a risk of, of further and wider escalation? I mean, is this a kind of controllable, low-level conflict, or, or are there broader kind of risks at play here? It's difficult to say at this moment. Polisario attacks are very, very much limited, as they were in the 1980s, to Moroccan positions along this defensive wall in, in, the, in the territory. And that Morocco has not responded in any significant way, as far as we can tell. There's one you know, kind of vague reports of a, a possible airstrike, a drone strike that killed a Polisario commander, but but we don't really have any on-the-ground confirmation from anyone. No one's really going and, and verifying what's happening. The UN is, you know, it's had ceasefire monitors in the territory since the 1992, and they're entirely silent on what's happening. We won't hear anything until the UN Secretary General submits a report in October on the situation. So we really have, we have no idea what, what like, like the on the ground realities are. And that's quite scary because not knowing what's happening on the ground could lead to the situation being exploited by external actors. We know jihadi actors are in the region. It's a huge uh, area of migration and smuggling and things of that sort. So it's certainly a situation that Algeria does not want to see spiral out of control. And that if there was an escalation, you know, by Morocco or from outside actors, we would also probably see Algeria take more increased interest in uh, securitizing the area. Thanks, Jacob. Nacho, if, if I could turn to you now, um, you know, Spain, along with France, have traditionally kind of provided Morocco with diplomatic cover on this issue, provided them with support on kind of their approach to Western Sahara. But, but in recent weeks, we've, we've seen this kind of collapse in relations over the issue of Western Sahara. Can you kind of explain to listeners what, what's going on and just provide a sense of how Western Sahara has come between Madrid and, and Rabat and, and where things may be headed? Spain has not, in fact, changed its position. It has, ha- has held a, a consistent position, uh, knowing that it sits in a very delicate place, also because it has a responsibility as a former colonial power, but also it needs to keep very good relations with Algeria as well, on which we are heavily dependent on gas imports. So, you know, Morocco, Algeria and the Western Sahara is kind of a Bermuda Triangle for any foreign minister venturing into it. It very likely disappears and fails because we don't have the leverage to push any of the sides into an agreement. So what we try to do 
is to try, of course, to, to find a negotiated solution under international law. We're not as free as the United States as to do away and break with international law. And this is what has been the game changer. You know, France, on the other hand, they don't have an issue having bad relations with Algeria, of course, for, for, for other reasons. So they are supporting and they've been supporting Morocco all along in, in more open ways. So I think the game changer was uh, December 10th. And as, as Jacob said, this led the Moroccans felt that, you know, the last mile of this very long struggle was, you know, to the reach of their hands and that therefore they needed only to push Spain a bit and then France in order to bring Algeria and the Polisario to the negotiating table and then, you know, the European Union would follow suit because, you know, they don't have a dog in the fight and so on. I think this is a severe and very deep misunderstanding of both Spain's capacity to, to switch positions there, but also of the capacity of the European Union to just do away with what the European Parliament and the European Court of Justice has been doing. So in a very bad situation already because a coalition government with left-wing supporters supporting the Sahrawi people in, in, in Spain, which is a traditional cause for, by the way, from Vox to the left. There's a sympathy in the Spanish people for the Western Sahara and for the Sahrawi people and the Polisario. Many of these young kids, you know, spend the summers in Spain with families. So there's a deep civil society and the sympathy there. So Spain is also tied electorally on this issue. But then, you know, the decision to host uh, on humanitarian reasons, Brahim Ghali was kind of the, the straw that broke the camels back to the eyes of, of Morocco. And this is when they decided to unleash this migration wave into Spain, into Ceuta. And in practical terms, diplomatic relations are broken at the moment with no dialogue going on. And we don't clearly see a deterioration. I think Morocco made, made a mistake in thinking that these days you can use migrants as, as a leverage. Maybe they can do it on Spain, but they don't realize that this is not 1975, that we're members of the European Union. And the European Union is not in the mood to get in more blackmails like it has got from Erdogan back in the past. So we, we, we really need to reconcile the situation. But we, we are also telling the Moroccans that we are not going to change our position out of just sheer coercion on migration. And also, they should not expect the European Union to change its position just like that. But is your sense then, I mean, you're essentially saying that, that Spain will continue almost to, despite this recent hiccup on migration and the problems with Rabat, to, to almost continue to, to lean in and support of Morocco, despite this issue. Is that what you're saying? The, the argument from Morocco, and I get that, and they repeat that every time, and I think they have a point in that saying, look, you know, you have Spanish people, European, two existential issues, migration and counterterrorism. We do everything to support you there. We have one existential issue, which is Western Sahara, but we cannot count on you there. And we said, sorry, you know, it is not in our hands. We cannot do that. So, it's very clear that Spain, like any other EU members, they do, they're not investing in a Western Sahara independent state sitting in the middle of Sahel and so on. You know, we would rather have a negotiated solution. We're not even pushing anymore for self-determination of because the census is gone and the possibility of referendum is not real. But the closest we can get to the Moroccan position has a very clear limit in international law and what the European Union is saying. We cannot go farther than that. And the Moroccans very clearly don't understand this. They don't think judges are independent, even in Brussels or in Luxembourg, and that we're just not willing to help them uh, along. And this is what they are retaliating. But I think, as I said, you know, they, they counted on France and the US. Blinken has played and Biden, I think, a very negative role in encouraging the Moroccans to think that they can be kind of Turkey for the European Union and Jordan for the US. You can be a strategic and privileged partner 
on both counts. And, and I think if the Americans don't intervene and they don't see a way out of this, they will continue encouraging the Moroccans. The, the Abraham Accords have been published in the US. They are formal now in terms of the recognition. There are military maneuvers going on between Morocco and the United States, which in Spain was usually participating. It's not there anymore. So the US is not playing a balanced role as it did in the past, knowing that both allies at both sides of the strait are absolutely strategic. So here's this equilibrium. And the EU can come to the rescue of Spain. It has done very strong statements. But you know what kind of leverage and power the EU can do is limited compared especially to the to the US one. Thanks, Nacho. So Irina, Nacho is in a sense there of international cover and, and kind of space for Morocco to maneuver. But he also referred to kind of EU principles and international law. And it'd be interesting to get your sense on the kind of wider European perspective here. I mean, we said, you know, Jacob mentioned that, that Germany has also had problems with Morocco of late because actually it's been un- it's been unwilling to to recognize Morocco's sovereignty over Western Sahara. Is the Spanish position reflective of, of a broader European position on this? Is there any willingness to put any pressure on Morocco or to try and get in the mix to try and forge a negotiated solution here? Well, uh, this is something that that has changed a lot uh, over the past five years or so. When I started looking at the EU policies and the EU's positions towards Western Sahara about 10 years ago, what I saw was that there was a broad consensus on not getting involved. Any EU officials you would talk to would say, we have no added value on this issue. We stick with the UN principles and the UN process, but there's nothing we can get by involving ourselves in, in, in this very complicated conflict that furthermore is low priority for us because uh, it's been frozen for, since the, the early 90s. So the, the EU had, was very happy to keep a backseat position. At the same time, the the relationship uh, with the two parties in the conflict was very unbalanced, of course, because the EU has a very deep bilateral relationship with Morocco, while there's no contractual relationship whatsoever with the Polisario Front. What I found most striking a few years ago was that Western Sahara was never mentioned on one single in one single document of the EU Morocco bilateral dialogue. So if you look at the, the action plan for Morocco or under the European neighborhood policy, there was no mention, no single, no single mention of the word Western Sahara. If you look at the advanced status that Morocco got from the EU in 2008, same thing. That has massively changed as a result of the Polisario Front launching legal cases against the cooperation deals between the EU and Morocco, which by default and a little bit through the back door have always included the territory of Western Sahara. And that, that's something that wasn't according to international law. So starting from 2015, 2016, there have been a number of rulings from the Court of Justice of the European Union establishing that Western Sahara is a legally distinct, a legally separate uh, territory that cannot be included as it is currently in all EU-Morocco cooperation deals. That totally changed the game because it well, it created a huge diplomatic crisis between Morocco and the EU. Morocco announced they would interrupt all uh, dialogue 
at the highest political level, all meetings of the Association Council and so on with the European Union. In 2016, this looked like a game changer. What happened in reality was that, after all, the two member states that are more heavily invested in the Western Sahara issue, France and Spain, lobbied very, very strongly in Brussels for all the EU-Morocco cooperation deals to be renegotiated with some creative tricks in order to include, again, Western Sahara, claiming the Commission had got the consent of the population of the territory. So this new legal cases story has forced the EU to get involved against its will in the Western Sahara issue. Am I right in thinking that this summer we're anticipating a decision from from the Court of Justice of the European Union to invalidate the EU's inclusion of Western Sahara in its trade and fisheries agreements with Morocco? And and if so, I mean, where does that take us? And you you seem to be suggesting there's this kind of this contradiction between kind of international law and where these key European member states come down on the issue. Yeah, there's a very, very fundamental contradiction that's not been sorted out. The renegotiated deals between the EU and Morocco were again challenged by the Polisario Front and we're expecting now, uh, I don't know exactly what the dates will be, we're expecting now new rulings that are very likely, I mean, based on the case law we already have, uh, are very likely to again invalidate the applicability of all of these cooperation deals to Western Sahara. And that's going to create a new big crisis because for Morocco uh, this is a non-negotiable uh, issue and this is seen as a threat to territorial integrity. What would be interesting, uh, in my view, uh, would be that the EU turned this crisis into an opportunity because the EU has strong leverage, economic leverage on Morocco. Morocco is still very heavily dependent on the EU for everything related to trade, foreign investment and and financial aid. And the EU has never made made use of this leverage uh, in order to put some pressure on this party to the conflict and force it to meaningfully engage in a conflict resolution process. So I think that the, the new rulings from the Court of Justice can possibly be turned into an opportunity if the Commission, the member states in the first place, don't uh, go in the same direction as in 2016. Jacob, you, you're, as someone who, who's followed this conflict for quite a long time, I mean, I'd be interested to get your sense on, you know, is there a sense of, of, of any European willingness or ability to kind of get it, get more engaged here? Can Europeans play a role? Should they play a role? Do you think there's an interest here in in, in terms of kind of Europeans looking and wanting to to help negotiate and stabilise this conflict compared to other competing interests with Morocco, whether it's terrorism, trade or migration? Yeah, one of the problems with the Western Sahara peace process has been a kind of responsibility has always been deferred to to some other agency. And so it, it never it never really rests anywhere. The UN Security Council looks to the Secretariat to manage the issue. The Secretariat, you know, gets a personal envoy who's expected to go work miracles, but those miracles can't work unless you have a Security Council. And one of the problems with the Security Council is are the divisions that exist within that as well. France being the, the primary backer of Morocco. And now with the US having a position of at least, you know, some formal kind of recognition, whether or not it will be upheld remains to be seen. But the function of the UN peace process has also been to kind of like, 
defer and make sure that there isn't pressure on the EU to have a position. Because one of the, I think, uh, one of the attitudes of the EU is that, well, that this is a UN problem and, and, and we don't have to deal with it. Well, that's kind of weird because, you know, the major trade activity is happening between, you know, two EU countries, Spain and France, you know, where's the responsibility there? So it's this sort of constant blame shifting, burden shifting kind of thing where Western Sahara just keeps going and going and going in terms of, a you know, being a frozen conflict because no one's really willing to like take up responsibility. And so one of the things we wanted to say in the report is it's, it's really time for the EU to recognize that it does, it does play a role, especially, you know, bilaterally with, with certain member states, which affects the kind of institution as a whole. But what would you propose should be that way forward for Europeans right now? Well, I think the primary thing is actually to be neutral in the issue and that having trade relations with Morocco that extend into a non-self-governing occupied territory is not an act of neutrality. So the the first step is to, especially if the if the court's ruling again is is against the fisheries agreement, then it's time for the EU as a whole to say, okay, we we need to adopt uh, policies and procedures that recognize one that th- this is an ongoing conflict, and that two, we need to actually, if we want to, if we want to see a peaceful resolution, we need to help create that space by by stepping back. Nacho, is there any chance of that happening in Madrid? Is that going to, you know, is there any prospect of movement? Well, I'm, my impression is that that this conflict is lasting so long because all the solutions are worse than the problem. <laughs> that is, a solution to the problem would entail people having to renounce and to lose some very basic issues like uh, statehood, sovereignty, an ongoing fight which is going on for 40 years, the legitimacy and so on. So the statu quo at the end plays a role which unfortunately, it's even if there are, you know, a breakup of military hostilities at some point, but, you know, the, the Polisario knows that they cannot win, that they cannot even, even hostigate the Moroccans to a significant extent. In any case, they are armed and supported by the Algerians who have only always wanted to use these to, you know, to have a weak Morocco and eventually access to the sea and so on. So in a sense, you know, for Morocco... It's hard for them to live with understanding that they have a de facto control of the territory, but they're never going to have the Euro control of the territory without a negotiation. And that's the status quo, out of which, as you said, which they benefit a lot with, a lot, with some bruises with the European Union here and then, but which they're very able to diplomatically control. The EU has said, as, as, as Irene has said, has gone all the lengths to try and minimize the cost of having them, including Western Sahara, in the agreements, trying to extend cooperation, trying to go all over these formulas. So it's, it's very hard to, to go on or to move beyond that. Again, you know, for the Algerians and, and for the Polisario, how do they justify that all this long struggle will end up in them being part of Morocco, even under a free association agreement, as, as, as Jacob and Hugo are proposing in their papers? So who has the leverage here and the incentives to change the game other than game changers, which are negative, as we've seen, because the European Court of Justice, in a sense, is a game changer, but it's not necessarily a positive game changer. It's a negative game changer. The same with the Trump administration. And maybe, you know, part of the problem here is that at some point, Spain and France should stay out, as you as you say, in part, you know, in your in your paper, that we are too close to be responsible for a solution which will also damage us 
because we don't want to have to choose sides anymore. I mean, we, we can do it de facto, but we can do it the year. So I don't see how things are going to be moving on. And I think they can only go worse. If Morocco uses this summer to unleash and also the Court of Justice ruling in order to unleash another wave of migratory influence into not only Ceuta, but also the rest of Spain, then there will be sanctions probably by the European Union. It would, things would get much worse before they get much better. But I must also say that there's a huge responsibility also with the Polisario, Abraham Ghali, who is the hardliner, who I think, you know, has made several mistakes in trying, you know, to, to, to declare war, which is impossible, and to open up hostilities. But I know it's a very frustrating solution, but honestly, I don't think it's in the hands of only Spain and Morocco to do it. Only an agreement between the EU and the United States at the same time would be able to, to fix things. And even then, I don't see why Algeria would accept a solution. Irina Nacho has been a touch pessimistic there. <laughs> and and w- would you share the sense that it's a kind of zero-sum deadlock between kind of Moroccan ambitions for, for continued sovereignty or for sovereignty and Polisario kind of ambitions for independence? Is there a way to kind of walk through that path? And, and can Europeans make a difference? Well, I think that we've been in this deadlock for, for decades now. So it's become clear that the cost of going beyond the status quo is very high for different actors involved and so on. Part of this, I would say that in the current situation, we're, we're seeing a little bit of the limits of the status quo on several fronts. Uh, we've seen the end of the ceasefire, uh, the, the resumption of hostilities, even if it's low-level hostilities, it's still something that questions whether uh, we should still have MINURSO, the UN uh, peacekeeping mission, which is not uh, preparing the, the self-determination referendum or uh, being able to maintain peace. We're also seeing the limits of the status quo in the current crisis between uh, Morocco and Spain. I'm fully aware of, uh, of the, extent, the extent to which the, any Spanish government is between a rock and a hard place when it comes to dealing with uh, uh, Morocco and Western Sahara. But still, it's also increasingly obvious that keeping things as they are is untenable in in many regards. And also that Morocco is now willing to go beyond the status quo in terms of entrenching and extending its territorial control in the Gergerat area, also in terms of wanting something beyond de facto acceptance, uh, trying to get the jure recognition from Western states, which is something uh, really unlikely. So, uh, yeah, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, Yeah, I'm not very optimistic either. But I I also uh, think that we're reaching some sort of tipping point for good or for bad and uh, some sort of reaction from the European Union and hopefully also uh, concerted with the US will be needed at some point. Thanks, Irina. Jacob, maybe I can ask a final question to you. I mean, you, in, in your paper that you and Hugh wrote for ECFR, you recognize, in a sense, the deadlock and the brokenness of, of the diplomatic process. And you lay out this idea of free association as a track that could potentially navigate through these kind of competing ambitions. Could you just kind of give us a sense of, of how you see that, what, what you mean by free association and, and why you think that it could have traction, given the, the quite kind of hardline perspectives that are driving this conflict from all sides? Well, the idea of free association is one that we picked up because 
one, it's firmly grounded in the the laws governing non-self-governing territories and decolonization. It's it's sort of laid out within UN principles as an option that states could become independent, they could integrate with another state, or they could choose to freely associate with another state. A kind of ideas related to free association were actually put forward by Polisario more in the context of post-independence guarantees. But uh, in 2007, Polisario had said, we're willing to enter into a kind of you know set of agreements that will uh, allow for continuity of Moroccan demographic, economic security interests in Western Sahara. And so we also wanted to pick up on those ideas. Third, we wanted to really kind of shift the narrative. In terms of thinking about Western Sahara, it's really been stuck this choice between an integrationist approach based on autonomy or full independence based upon establishment of the Saharan Arab Democratic Republic in full. And to say that, well, okay, if we're actually going to talk about third ways that are grounded in international law, let's look back to decolonization, the early norms and things like that. And so we said we thought, you know, free association was more like the kind of third way that has been missing in Western Sahara. And that autonomy isn't really a third way. It's just sort of a concession within Moroccan sovereignty. Now, whether or not it's realistic is, is another question. But what we wanted to do was more importantly was shift the narrative and to have ideas out there. Because if Western Sahara is heading for a crisis and in crisis moments, international leaders grasp for ideas, we wanted to make sure that these ideas were out there. Jacob, thanks for that. And again, I'd encourage readers to, to have a look on our website for this paper so, so that you can get, get further into it. And there's a lot to unpack here and we, we could really go on for quite some time, but, but I'm afraid that, that time is drawing to, to a close for the podcast. This is an issue that we're going to come back to in, in various guises at ECFR. We're going to keep working on. Nacho has hinted at the prospect of a hot summer ahead if the migration issue between Spain and, and Morocco heats up and, and Western Sahara is obviously at the heart of that. So thank you very much to, to all three of you for, for this rich conversation. And, and it's one that, that is to be continued. We have one last thing to do. That's our bookshelf section. So Irina, maybe I could start with you. What, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Well, last week, when the whole crisis between Morocco and Spain was developing, we have a seminar in my department here at Exeter with Kelly Greenhill, which reminded me of a great book, Weapons of Mass Migration. She wrote a few years ago. It's published by Cornell University Press, and it's about several case studies of the use of migration control and especially of uh, massive migration flows as a form of coercion in international relations. Thank you. And, and Jacob, what are you reading? Well, I'm on a, a book prize committee, so I'm reading about 25 books this summer. But uh, the one that I actually want to uh, get into is uh, Crises and Hegemonic Transitions by uh, Fusaro. Thank you. And Nacho? I'm reading his last years in English, but it's now in Spanish. It's called Apocalypse is Never, but Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All by Michael Schellenberg, who's an environmental activist who complains about the fact that very often environmental claims become moral and ideological rather than practical and, and policy-oriented, and this harms the kind of the cause of, 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 of reaching those goals. Very interesting, very provocative book but so, by someone who's not a climate change denier, but an, uh, an environmental activist, but, say, but somehow says, don't help me that much on, <laughs> on, on this, you know, because you can hurt uh, the real cause behind, yeah. 
Sounds very interesting. As for me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a third and final plug for, for ECFR's recent paper by, by Jacob and Hugh, Free to Choose, the New Plan for Peace in Western Sahara. And that paper, along with, with the other books just mentioned, will all be available on our website. So, so please do have a look at that. So many thanks to, to all of you for this conversation. I hope that listeners have found it interesting. And if you do enjoy listening to the podcast, Please do let other people know about it by giving us a good rating and review on whatever platform you're using. But for now, from Marina Fernandez Molina, Nacho Torre Blanca, Jacob Mundy, and myself, Julian Barnes-Dacey, it's goodbye. The researcher of this podcast is Lucy Halpenthal, and the editor of this episode is Marlena Riedel. Mm-hmm.